please, to Joshua in chapter 2. Joshua in chapter 2, please. Joshua chapter 2. I want to read this whole chapter. 24 verses, hang in there. Um, Hear the word of God. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, the men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed to dark, the men went out. I did not know where the men went Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shion and to, and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted away, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down uh, by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, where the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear." And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all, land, all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Now, 
As we've come to this book of Joshua, we've asked the question, how will this study of ours, how will the message, how will these particular messages, what we read, uh, give us hope so that we can persevere, we can continue in serving the Lord. You remember the, the purpose for which Joshua seems to be written is for us to join with him and say, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And so that's the climax. That's where he's coming. So that's why this is written for us and written for all the generations even before us and after us so we can read this and have confidence that we can serve the Lord. And, and his theme, therefore, the way that he gets us to that point is to talk to us, to teach us about, to show us the faithfulness of God. So that at the end we look and say, God is faithful, therefore we will serve him. And so that's sort of the overriding thing here uh, for us. And so uh, now as we come to this chapter 2, we realize that the Israelites are getting ready to really enter into the land. Joshua got his commission in chapter 1 and some instructions and so forth about how, how he's to do that. And now, just like Moses, he sends in some spies into the land, into Jericho most especially, to check it out. Because they're going to take it. Now, just as an aside, soon we will uh, ask the question, uh, how is it ethical for the Israelites to go in and take land from people and kill everybody. Okay? So that's that's a problem for you if you're wondering about what we're going to do about that. We're going to come to that, uh, not today, uh, but soon. Uh, we don't want to avoid that kind of question. We don't need to avoid that kind of question. We can answer that kind of question. And so we're going to come to that. I hope if you've been with us long enough, you realize that our study of the scripture is rigorous. Um, it's probably... Um, our rigor is only hurt by time and my weakness, so we try to dig as deeply as we possibly can. We don't want to avoid uh, certain kinds of questions, so we'll come to that soon enough. We may also, we'll also need to ask the question, given the days in which we live, I suppose, is there any relationship between the land promises that are made here in Joshua and present-day Israel and what's going on there today? We probably won't answer that question on a Sunday morning. That'll probably be a Wednesday night kind of a thing. Uh, because it's not really all that necessary as we work through Joshua. But just if those questions are in your mind, that's where we're... Relax. We'll get to them. Um, if you have any thoughts about those, you can email me and I'll read about that. But, uh, but, but that's where we're headed. But they really are going to go into the land, and they really are going in the land with the purpose of spying it out so that they can take it. And you probably know the story of what happens in Jericho anyway, and that's coming shortly, and the whole city, as you remember, is destroyed. But, but So that's why they come. They come to spy out the land. They lodge, interestingly enough, in the house of a prostitute named Rahab. And you say, well, why'd they go there? Um, uh, well, I suppose uh, if you're a spy and you don't want anybody to take your name, that's a place where nobody generally takes your name, I've been told. Uh, and so, uh, uh, so, so that was a place not uncommon for strangers, strange men, uh, to, uh, to lodge in visiting uh, foreign places, especially if they didn't want it to be known. But they were found out. The king somehow got word that these two spies had come to Rahab's house to lodge. So he sends word to her saying, 
you know, give up these men. Uh, give them into our possession. And then she turns around and she says, oh, I didn't know uh, where they were from. Uh, and, and, and they went that way. Anyway, which was a lie. Because she had already hidden them. She knew who they were. And she knew they were Israelites. And she knew, it appears, why they were there. She had already hidden them. And uh, she said, I, I didn't know who they were. And they've gone away. So she protected the spies by lying. Now, you may ask the question, was that right for her to do? And I'm not going to answer that. And the reason I'm not going to answer that is because it really isn't pertinent to this incident. And my fear is that if we spend our time trying to answer that question, which isn't answered here, we'll miss the point of this particular passage. Now, you can play with that with your children. You can play with that with your friends. Whether or not Rahab should have lied in this instant. But it isn't the point here. And the reason I know it isn't the point here is because the author doesn't pause at all to give us any commentary upon what she did and how she did it. Nor is Rahab's lie ever mentioned in the rest of Scripture, though Rahab is mentioned in two very significant places, three really, but two as it pertains to this. One in Hebrews, when it simply commends, when the author of Hebrews simply commends her faith, and once in James, when, the, when James simply commends her faith. What she did, that she was faithful to God, and it was, it was evidence of her faith in Him. And so, since the Bible doesn't deal with it, I'm not going to deal with it uh, either. Uh, we could, I suppose. But the Bible gives a tremendous amount of space and grace to Rahab, and perhaps we should as well. I mean, what would you have done in a situation like that? What would you have done in Nazi Germany if you were hiding Jews in your house and the authorities came? Would you have responded like the Tin Boom family did and lied? They're not there. Would you harbor runaway slaves if a vicious owner would come after them and they were in your home? What would you say? Do you support people who go into foreign countries under the guise of teaching English when really their intention? It's to tell people about Jesus. And if the country knew about that, they would never let them in. Do you help people smuggle Bibles into countries that are opposed to having the scripture in their country? And yet they... Let's just chill on old Rahab. I mean, by faith can be messy at times. There's a mess. We're going to leave it a mess. And we're going to go after the point, because you the point is, what's really all of this is building up, is Rahab's profession of faith. You see, the reason she did what she did was because she believed in God. And the reason that she was going to do what she was going to do, that is, let, the, let these men out of her window so they could escape and get back. And the reason that she was going to trust them, in a sense, with their, her very life and the life of her family, was because... She believed in God. And that's what all this building to. For instance, just take a look at verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon uh, us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. That, by the way, was the satisfaction for the men spying. That was what they needed to know. That's what they wanted to know. What's really going on in Jericho in relation to us Israelites? And she said, trust me, when they hear of you, they faint. 
In fact, that's the word that these spies bring back to Joshua. Remember verse 24. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. That was the word. That's what they needed to know. Well, why was that the case? Verse 10. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. See, the word had gotten out. The word had gotten out about the Red Sea. It was huge. I mean, think about what took place on that day. We've talked about it often because it's so significant. This sea parted, and amazingly then it dried up underneath. I mean, it's pretty amazing to stop a flowing sea. But then to dry up the bed underneath that must have just been soggy from having a river on top of it uh, so that people could cross was amazing. They heard about that. And they began to think, who could do that? If that God is after us, we must be in trouble. And then they heard about what took place with these two kings of the Amorites at the end of the 38-year period of time wherein uh, you remember the uh, Israelites were to wander in the wilderness. At the end of that time, even with Moses, they began to make their move towards this land of promise. And that's when they began to conquer these kings. Don't turn to this, but in Deuteronomy in chapter 2, Moses says this to the people. He says, rise up. And set out on your journey and go over the valley of Arnon. Behold, I've given into your hand Shion the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So it's no surprise that they heard about this. It's no surprise that they trembled when they heard about this because that was the means that God had prepared to use in order to bring fear into the hearts of the enemies of Israel. And it worked. They heard about it. She goes, Phew, we've heard about that. We realize if, if the Red Sea can part and you can go through it, we realize if you can conquer these kings and kingdoms, then we should be filled with fear. That would be the normal response to that and so they were then verse 11 and as soon as we heard it our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you for the Lord your God he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath what this communicated to to Rahab was who God was she got it she understood it she realized who God was there are many people who know who God is. There are many people who see his greatness, but simply run from him, or fight still against him, suppress that truth. Rahab didn't notice, verse 12. Now then, please swear to me, that, uh, swear to me by the Lord, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. About Rahab's life, one author puts it like this. He says, She saw his might, which she did, parting the Red Sea, drying it up, 
defeating those kings. She also saw his majesty. Because in that she realized that he is God. The heavens and the earth. And that then led her to plead for his mercy. Now, I would add to that. That it caused her to plead for his covenant mercy. And I put it that way because of the way it's put here in the, in the scripture. She uses the expression, verse 12, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house. Now that little expression, deal kindly with me, is a very technical expression in covenantal language. How you like that statement? Right? It's a very technical statement in covenantal language. That is, when covenants, and the Bible's full of them, in fact, the whole nature of the scripture, the kind of the surrounding understanding, organizing principle of the Bible is this whole idea of covenants with the old covenant and the new covenant and all that kind of thing. When a covenant is made, that is, a promise is made, the way that the covenant maker treats the others in the covenant is by this expression, kindly, or compassionately, or mercifully. The Hebrew word is a word, it's um, chesed, which I hate to spit on the communion elements, but, you know, when I was in seminary, I was afraid to choke on my food in the cafeteria for fear some of my, one of my fellow students would say, he's finally getting his Hebrew. Um, <laughs> and I would just die. Chesed. Um, which in the old King James Version is translated loving kindness. Now, if you have a concordance on your computer in the King James Version, plug in loving kindness. Uh, if, you have, uh, one in, if you have one in the other versions, you can plug in mercy, compassion. Uh, if you have an RSV, you can plug in the expression steadfast love. And what you'll find are all kinds of verses in the Old Testament, most especially in the Psalms, which deal with this. That's why David could say in Psalm 63, your loving kindness is better than life. Because he says, my whole life depends upon your mercy. This is what follows us all the days of our lives. Surely goodness and mercy, or goodness and and kindness, goodness and loving kindness, goodness and chesed, follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When David sins, and he writes his confession in Psalm 51, he comes to the Lord on the basis of God's loving kindness, on the basis of his mercy. He's saying, for your loving kindness sake, forgive my sins. You see, when someone in covenant with another, most especially someone in covenant with God, pleads to them, they come to God on the basis of his mercy, on the basis of his loving kindness, on the basis of his promise, and therefore his faithfulness to that promise. And there's a sense in which, I say this reverently, that God is bound by his oath to respond. When he's made a promise, and we appeal to that promise on the basis of his mercy, He's obligated by his very word, and can I say this reverently, you know me, not a name it and claim it moment here. He's obligated to hear us and to respond. 
Now, we'll get in a minute to the fact that Jesus is the very loving kindness of God, obviously. So we appeal on the basis of Jesus. But here, prior to the coming of Christ, appealing on the basis of covenant. And what's amazing here is this is a Gentile prostitute who's appealing to God on the basis of his covenant, on the basis of his mercy. This must have shocked these spies right out of their shoes. Why in the world is she appealing to God on the basis of his kindness? What gives her that right? Now, at the moment, it seemed pretty good because that was the way they were going to be able to escape. But it seems as if she had something much deeper than that because, you see, when she appealed to them on the basis of God's kindness and they granted that in the name of God that she would be saved her and her family she became a part of Israel in fact in Joshua chapter 6 we'll read the little expression about Rahab because I'll talk about her a little bit more there that uh, Rahab lives among us to this day and not only that if you read in Matthew chapter 1 you'll realize that she married an Israelite named Salmon and you'll realize that together they had a, 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 a son named Boaz who also married a non-Israelite woman named Ruth who gave birth to a son named Obed who was the grandfather of King David. And the reason we know all that is because it's listed in the genealogy of Jesus. She got it. And she was saved. Because she saw the might of God. She saw the majesty of God. And it led her to plead for his mercy. And to plead for his mercy on the basis of his kindness, on the basis of his covenant, on the basis of his promise. Now what gave her the right to do that? How could she, a Canaanite, a Gentile, a non-Israelite, be able to appeal to God on the basis of a covenant that he had made with Abraham, a covenant that he had made with Israel. And the reason she could do that was because it wasn't just made with Israel. Genesis chapter 12. If you're quick, you can find this. As I'll be done with it before you get there. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, this is before his name was changed, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Rahab foreshadowed the fulfillment of that promise. Though she was a Gentile, still she could enter in. Just the same way that Abraham entered in. The way that Abraham was able to enter in this covenant promise of God is by believing. It wasn't anything he had done. We don't know anything at all about Abraham before he was chosen by God. All that we know about him comes really by way of a byline it's in the Old Testament saying that his comes from a family of moon worshippers. Oh, we know. 
But yet God shows up and chooses him and says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, we know eventually that comes through Jesus. But we see that there are people in the families of the earth that are going to be blessed on the basis of this covenant made with Abraham. And she, whether she knew that or not, she appeals to God by his loving kindness on the basis of his kindness, his mercy, his compassion, his grace. You've made a promise to save all who believe in you just like with Abraham. So I'm coming. And you see, she became not a physical descendant of Abraham. Can't redo that. But she certainly became a spiritual descendant of Abraham. And to enjoy the blessings of this covenant, all because she believed. You see, Rahab, therefore, is just like us. Or, could we say, we're just like Rahab. The promise has been made. Just like she is able to see the, the might of God and the majesty of God and plead for his mercy, how else did we get it? We saw the might of God in the person of our Lord Jesus, did we not? I mean, we, we saw him, or we hear of him. The very word of God tells us of his might that he can, he can make the blind see. He can make the deaf hear. He can cause the lame to walk. He can raise the dead. He can calm the sea. He can feed thousands. The might of our Lord Jesus. And then we peer deeper into the cross and we see his might and majesty. We see his might in the cross because through it he destroyed sin and death. Through it he conquered sin and death. And we know that he conquered sin and death because he rose again from the dead. It didn't hold him. And so in rising from the dead it was an announcement. I've won. I've, 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 I've conquered death. Who else has done this? but I've conquered it. And how can death be conquered? Only by dealing with that which is at the root cause of death, which is our sin, being alienated from the life that's in God. And so in his death, he destroyed death by paying the penalty of sin. And therefore, he's raised, you see. And, he's, and that's the very might of Jesus, the power of God to do that. But yet it also blows us away with his majesty because we see in that the holiness of God. And we see in that the wisdom of God. And we see in that the very love and grace and mercy of God. Who else is like him? And we enter in the same way Rahab entered in, by trusting, by believing, by pleading for his mercy. I mean, she saw that judgment against her city was inevitable. She saw it coming. She realized that they were in the path of God and they would be destroyed. And she realized that no matter how strong her city seemed, no matter how fortified it was, there were no match for God. And she must have realized as well that that was certainly true of her. She had no hope other than to cast herself on the mercy of this one who was coming. And to hope by his mercy that he would number her with the ones who had gone through the Red Sea to number her with the ones who defeated these kings, to number her with his people. And by faith, she was numbered with that very group. 
the same is true for us. And we plead the mercy of God that he'll number us with those for whom Christ has died. We come not on the basis of anything we have, not on the basis of any strength of ours. How silly would it have been for Rahab to say, listen, you need me for this battle. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to (laughs) fight. They would have just laughed. Well, it's just as laughable for us to say, here's what we're going to do, God. I'm going to help you with this battle against sin and death. Um, You need me in the fight, and therefore I'm going to help conquer sin and death. And, And he would laugh, as well he should. Because we're powerless as she was powerless. That's the very point. And he said, no, I'll be the one. I'll be the one. It will be my glory, not yours. And so you see, in the midst of that, we, we plead his loving kindness. Because you see, Jesus is the very loving kindness of God. Jesus is the very kindness of God. Jesus is the very mercy of God. Jesus is the very grace of God to us. And so we plead him. We come on the basis of him. And when we do that, with a heart sincere, then God, can I put it this way, is obliged to respond to us. Because he's promised to respond to us. And he says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All who have seen the might of Jesus in destroying sin and death. All who see the majesty of God in him because of his holiness and his righteousness and his mercy and his love. And all who see their own weakness and all who see their own sin call upon him. And he says, I'll I'll receive you. And you, you may say, okay, 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 okay. I'm willing to identify with Rahab at that point, but but come on, she was a prostitute. Do I really have to identify with her like that? And of course, in one sense, no, not if you're not a real prostitute. But the scripture uses that kind of language of us in our sin all the time. Remember the prophet Hosea. He was given the life of reflecting uh, the nation's sin. And the way that he was to reflect the nation's sin to them, his prophetic word to them was wrapped up in his being married to one who was a prostitute. And he would continue to say to the people, you're just like Gomer. You're just like she is. Because she's selling herself, giving herself even, to other men, men other than me, for compensation, for satisfaction. And you're doing the same. See, there's a sense in which all of our sin is just like unfaithfulness, just like impurity, just like prostitution, just like adultery, except spiritual, where we're giving ourselves to another other than God. He's saying to us, I want you to be mine. I want you to be betrothed to me. I want you to be uh, my bride. And the degree to which we cast ourselves on others, whether it be trusting in the wisdom of another, whether it be trusting in the ways of another, whether it be trusting in our own passions, whatever that may be. But when we do that, you see, we're spiritual prostitutes. We're casting, giving ourselves to another, that we might be compensated, that we might be satisfied by them in some way. And God is saying, no, 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 no. I'm the only one who can do that. 
So don't do that. One fifth century, it's a long time ago, one fifth century uh, preacher put it like this. He said, this harlot, dearest brothers, was a figure of the church, which before Christ's advent used to commit fornication with many idols. But when Christ came, he not only delivered her from fornication, but also by a great miracle made her a virgin. For the apostle says concerning the church, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Rahab fits there too in the context of our own lives. That's the image of ourselves before coming to Christ. And now he says, I want to make you a pure virgin that I can give to my son, God says, so that you may be betrothed to him. And that's the work of God in redeeming and forgiving our sins. And you see, if we don't identify with Rahab at that point spiritually, we're not really getting it. Jesus remarked on this on various occasions. For instance, Matthew chapter 21, he's speaking. And he says this in the middle of verse 21. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. And he's speaking to the religious leaders must have just blown their socks right off. Well, why would he say such a thing? Because he's saying they're getting it, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. They understand their sin. They understand who they are. They understand what they're doing. They understand their wrongness. You, you don't. You, you think you're really better than that. And if we think spiritually we're better than old Rahab the prostitute, we're just wrong. We're just not. And Jesus said that. And he went on to say, For John came to you, that is John the Baptist, came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Why? Because they saw the might, the majesty. They looked into their own lives, and they pled for mercy. Whereas those who are righteous in their own eyes, they don't see how great he is. They don't see how majestic he is. And they don't see they need his mercy. Luke chapter 5 put like this. Verse 29. And Levi, Matthew, uh, made him, Jesus, a great feast in his house. And there was a large number of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, until we're willing to come to grips with our own harlotry, spiritually, then we don't know our sickness, and thus we have no physician. But it's when we come to grips with our harlotry, spiritually, that then we plead mercy, For that's why Jesus has come. And that's for whom Jesus has come. Luke chapter 7, dramatic story, the life of Jesus. He's invited to this man's house, this Pharisee. Um, Beginning in verse 36, I won't read it. 
And a woman comes. She's a sinner, as the scripture puts it, and likely a prostitute. She wets Jesus' feet with her tears, wipes them with her hair, kisses his feet, anoints them with this ointment that she brings. This Pharisee begins to think, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who, who's touching him, for she's a sinner. Isn't that amazing? The very Son of God allows himself to be touched by sinners. Aren't you glad about that? Verse 40, And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, Say it, teacher, a certain money lender had two debtors, one of them 500 denarii, the other 50. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he was forgiven little, loves little. See, until we identify with Rahab's harlotry and our own spiritual harlotry, we won't know the deep forgiveness of sins. And we'll find our love for Christ little. But when we do identify with Rahab's harlotry and our own spiritual harlotry, then we'll know how much we've been forgiven. And we will love much. See, sometimes we wonder why our worship is so shallow. Sometimes we wonder why our lives are so sort of blah. No passion. Well, there are times when we need to reflect about our own lives deeply enough, not morbidly, but deeply enough to know how much we've been forgiven. Rahab wakes us up. She knew it. She got it. Do we? Because you see, the truth is, no matter what we've done, think about the context of our own lives, the slander perhaps we've been involved in, the gossip we've been involved in, how we've maligned others. Perhaps even in our own sexual impurity, whether it's adultery, whether it's abortion, whether it's pornography the context of our own lives of honesty, whether we've been dishonest, whether we've embezzled, whether we've stolen, how much we've lied. You know, go on and on. You can list your own. But the truth of the matter is, Christ has come for us. That he's the physician to come to deal with that sickness. To the degree to which we say we don't have it, we don't get healed by Jesus to the degree that we're willing to see it and admit it and embrace it, not in just some sort of general ethereal kind of, oh yes, I'm a sinner too kind of thing, but with the degree we really deal with it honestly in the context of our own lives and heart. We really come to grips with it is the degree to which Jesus thoroughly cleans us and thoroughly heals us. We shouldn't be shocked at the depth of our own sin, dismayed maybe, we're not shocked by it. Nor should we be shocked by the sin of others. 
See, one of the things that makes church sometimes so difficult to do is we have high expectations for each other. Why? I don't know. Because we came into this club saying we're all sinners. (laughs) And now we expect each other to be all perfect. And so when something goes wrong, we just kind of get all bent out of shape about it. And why? We should be saddened by it. We should help each other along in it. But we shouldn't be pious about it. We shouldn't be saying, oh, Rahab shouldn't have done this or Rahab shouldn't have done this. We should just be along and along with each other, forgiving and accepting forgiveness. Because that's who we are. And when we know that, then we've received from Jesus. Think about this too. There was old Rahab. She got converted in the midst of this incredibly anti-God culture. She got converted, no doubt, even before the spies showed up. I mean, it wasn't their showing up that converted her. She knew at that point. She went to them and she said, I know about your God. I've known all this. I've reflected on this. He is God in the heavens and in the earth. And I know that. She was just waiting for opportunity to profess her faith to somebody. Because nobody else wanted to hear it. She was the only one, it appears, in Jericho like that. And she had to live in the midst of that culture till they came. And then, once assured that she'd be saved, she had to live in that culture knowing she was different than everybody else and knowing judgment was coming. Does that feel familiar? I mean, isn't that exactly how we live? I mean, we have more comrades, we have more fellowship, we have more who are like us than she did, no doubt. But that's in a sense how we live. We're living assured the judgment is coming, assured that we're going to be safe in the midst of that judgment because Christ is with us and we belong to him. But still we're here. Don't you think she would have been tempted at times to look uh, around and see the walls of Jericho and say... Those are pretty thick and pretty strong. Maybe I should trust those. Maybe when these Israelite people come, they won't be able to break down those walls. She'd have never guessed how it was going to happen. But then there was this little thing. This funny little thread. This little scarlet cord. You see, the sign that she was going to be saved was this little piece of thread. I don't know how big it was. This scarlet cord, that's all it's said about. It's red, kind of sticking out her window. And there she was every day. She lived in the, in the wall. So there she was, living in the wall, this big thick wall, this wall of protection to keep her safe. And the wall wasn't going to protect her. All that was going to protect her was this little red thread. She'd look at the wall, and she'd look at the red thread. Now, on a bad day, how many of you know the wall looked pretty good? But there was something still there in that red thread where she saw the might of God, where she saw the majesty of God, where she saw the mercy of God. Now, nowhere in the scripture do we ever hear much of anything, really, about this little red cord, this little scarlet cord after that. It's been made much of in church history because some have been able to say, well, wow, that red blood symbol. Let's go back to the Passover. 
Isn't that how the Israelites lived on that fateful night when the angel of judgment was coming through and they lived under that red blood on that night and they were saved? Or let's go forward to the, to the blood of Christ. Isn't that how we live? Isn't that what we look at? And we say, yes, we live under the blood of Christ. That's what keeps us safe. On, on bad days, doesn't the world look strong? And don't we want to go to it for security and help and all kinds of ways and depend upon our doctors and depend upon our jobs and depend upon our families and depend upon our friends and depend upon our country, depend upon our military and all of that. Doesn't all that look strong? And yet we have this blood wherein we see the might of God, the majesty of God, and the mercy of God. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood Shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. I don't know what that scarlet cord is supposed to mean now to us. If anything, I know what this means. This is the gaze of our souls. It's here in the blood of Christ that we see the might of God destroying sin and death. It's here in the blood of Christ that we see the majesty of God, His justice, as He condemns sin, but His grace as He receives sinners. And so just like Rahab, I realize my spiritual harlotry. I realize I've gone after other lovers I've realized I've cast my heart upon those to satisfy me. It is not my true love. And I repent. And I come back and I stare at the cord. I stare at the blood of Christ. Say, yes. And I pray that God would deal kindly with me. That on the basis of his loving kindness the basis of Christ, on the basis of this blood, that he would forgive me, receive me. And he has. And he says, when I come back, you will live. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me, for us, that we'd be certain of that. The Father, that each one of us would come to grips with our own sinfulness, that we wouldn't look at others and say, oh, look at your sin and all of that. And God, we wouldn't be morbid about this and just sort of roll in it. But God, in a reasonable way, in an honest way, in a genuine way, reveal to us our sin. But not only that, we pray that you would reveal to us strongly the might 
of God in destroying sin and death through Christ. Reveal to us strongly the majesty of God as he reveals himself to us in Christ. Enabling us to take heart in the covenant which you have made and the promise you have made in your own loving kindness to us. That we would know that we belong to you. And that our belonging to you is the fulfillment of a promise you made 4,000 years ago. In fact, it's a plan that you knew of even before the creation of the world. That we're a part of that. And that nothing can shake it. Father, I pray that you set apart this bread and this juice in such a way that would remind us of Christ, that would fix in our minds, even in our taste buds, the truth of Christ, and that we would be secure, and that it would be our desire henceforth to walk with him, to serve him, to worship him. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It is not ours, but it is His. It's the table of the Lord. And He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be spiritual prostitutes apart from Him. All them understand themselves to be sinners without hope except in God's sovereign mercy, His covenant love, His covenant kindness, His covenant grace. And understand that He has made a promise to save all those who come to Him by way of repentance, turning from their spiritual harlotry, to faith in Christ, the one who is faithful and pure, and all those who trust in Him and Him alone, that when judgment comes, that will stand because of him that's true of you and please come these two sections here to my left come down this aisle to my left these two down the aisle to my right take a piece of bread dip it in a cup eat it and in your mind should be going something like this he has saved me imagine that please come So please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us, that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And together let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him.